0: I'm, I'm Pat, one of the pastors here, and um, again, what Steve just wrote, read is our, our uh, text for today's sermon, Job chapter 11, verses 13 through 20, and again, that's in page 424 of the Red Bibles. Um, you just heard Steve read those. Who, who heard that as sort of encouraging words, I guess? Do, do good and things will go well with you? Right? Uh, don't do good and things won't go so well. Um, if you didn't catch that, the, these are Job's friends' words, right? And, and we have been raised to hear how awful uh, Job's friends are. And I thought, um, I, I've told you before that that each one of the sermons we've done on this series in Job has been uh, very difficult to preach because it is talking about suffering and um, and, and, and just this idea that God's sovereign in our suffering, and, and they, each one's been difficult. And so uh, the two sermons we have on Job's friends, I thought, well, that, that'll be the easier part. First of all, because the first one Steve's doing. Uh, and, uh, and then, but then for this one, I mean, it's, it's Job's friends' words, right? All, all I need to do is really come up and criticize Job's friends. I don't need to uh, to take it so personally. And then... Over the weeks I've been preparing for this, I uh, start thinking about how I've responded to suffering um, with people I love dearly. And uh, you know, and some of the suffering you might think of as, as maybe not on the level of Job's suffering, you know, the stress about what you're doing uh, in, in the future, about finding a job, about school, about... Um, just, just what you're going to be doing over the next week, but about uh, whether you're going to be able to gather with loved ones because of the weather over Christmas. And I think about how I've responded to hearing that kind of suffering, and, and I heard, wow, um, I hear some of Job's friends in that. I, uh, sometimes advice that's not needed, um, humor that's not needed, humor that's not good. Um, and I think of uh, some other suffering of, of uh, people who are dealing with, with difficult family relationships, with uh, um, breaks between, between parents and, and children, uh, between friends, between husbands and wives, and uh, realize that I'm, I'm apt to speak pretty quickly sometimes and, and to hear not so quickly. And then we have weeks like this where, again, I'm, I'm thinking things are going pretty well, um, and almost as if I need the uh, uh, the, the grounding, you know, we we have a beloved people, a, a mother that's died, a, a brother that's died, a daughter that's died, just in this past week. And that's suffering, that's real suffering, and I find that I am so often like Job's friends, and I I'm quick to speak. Slow to hear, or maybe not quick to speak when I need to be speaking. And just like Steve uh, said in in his sermon last week, what do I say? How do I minister? And I don't think I'm alone in that. Let's pray. Lord, have mercy. This world hurts, and we know that we are called to be your light. We don't know how to be your light. (laughs) We know we're we're called to show the way, and sometimes we feel we don't know what the way is. Um, But you are sovereign. So again, we. We just ask, Lord, have mercy. Amen. So last Sunday, uh, Pastor Stephen talked about uh, uh, some of the opening words, or the opening words of of Job's friends, of of Eliphaz, who, um, again, remember these friends started off really, really well. They came from a long distance. They came to, to show sympathy and to comfort their friend who was just suffering in a terrible way and then they started speaking and they started lecturing and pontificating and and even accusing Job and that's when the the wheels fell off the bus this is only the opening, the next 22 chapters, we're in chapter 4, uh, but the next 22 chapters are back and forth dialogue between Job and his friends, and again, they, they continue to, to teach and, and, and to glorify themselves, to, what I would do, they often say. They instruct, they accuse, and Job responds in his defense, and it's not that the friends are speaking outright lies. Again, as we read through this, there is a lot of truth in what they say, but it's not the whole truth. And so their error is not in what they say, but the fact that they oversimplify God's truth. uh, They they address complex mysteries with simple human wisdom. In these 20-plus chapters, Job's friend's words resonate with two themes, uh, and, and those themes have each got accusations that come with them. The righteous prosper. So the accusation that comes out of that is Job is not prospering, so Job must not be righteous. And then the next one is that the wicked suffer. And Job is suffering, so he must be wicked. In the eyes of Job's friends, the solutions to these problems are easy, right? If, if, if Job would just simply seek God, if he would clean up his life, turn up, or turn away from sin, worship God, His sorrows would cease. We see different iterations of this prescription from each of the friends, from from, uh, Eliphaz, from Bildad, and then from today's text, from Zophar. And again, there is truth in these words. There is scriptural truth in these words. The righteous will prosper. The wicked will suffer and perish But again, their application of these into Job's life, into Job's specific suffering, is uh, oversimplified and and it's superficial. They attempt to bring meaning to Job's suffering, but they attempt to do so in a way that makes sense in their human understanding, that can fit within their human wisdom. And this should be understandable to us. We have a very difficult time comprehending that problem of theodicy. uh, That's the idea of reconciling God's power and God's goodness with the evil and suffering that exist in the world. And when we treat deep mysteries like Job's suffering uh, as, as a problem that we can solve with our human minds, our human understanding, we are in danger of becoming friends like Eliphaz, like like Bildad and, and like Zophar, and, and coming to this false theology that, that first focuses on the temporal uh, and, and then extols man's righteousness and claims man's sovereignty in suffering. We, we believe rightly that God is sovereign in our well-being. He, he gives us good things in that sovereignty, that he cares for us in that sovereignty, that he protects us, that he even guides us to righteousness. We've got a much harder time believing that God is sovereign in our suffering, that he sees, allows, ordains, or even causes our suffering. But this is what I believe to be the truth, what I believe we're going to see as we dive deeper into the text today in Job chapter 11. God's sovereignty in our well-being requires God's sovereignty in our suffering and God's sovereignty in our well-being requires God's sovereignty in our suffering again for for context this comes in the middle of 20 plus chapters of this back and forth between Job and his friends the friends came with good purpose to show sympathy to, to give comfort to the friend who was suffering they start off well, they mourn with Job, they cry, with, cry out with Job, and then they sit in silence for seven, uh, seven days and seven nights with him. And then they listen to him cry out in despair. And when Eliphaz starts speaking, he does so in a wonderful way, right? He, he's, he's speaking out in humility, and his first words are of comfort to a friend who is faint-hearted, who is suffering but then he begins to lecture and to teach and even to accuse. He, he abandons the wisdom, and Stephen taught about this last week in his, in his sermon, that to encourage the faint hearted. We, we do that not by fixing them, but by relating to them. We encourage with relationship building. We encourage with our actions. We encourage with our words went downhill from there with the friends. They lecture, they pontificate, they accuse, they do so with many words, and each of those words seems to cut deeper and deeper. And in the midst of this, they explain to Job how he can fix his suffering. And we see this summarized here in Zophar's words. In, in, the, in the passage again, Job chapter 11, verses 13 through 20, Zophar presents a conditional promise. An if-then statement. Right? If you will do this, then this will happen. So first, the conditions. Starting in verse 13. If you prepare your heart, you will stretch out your hands toward him. If iniquity is in your hand, put it far away and let not injustice dwell in your tents. So far, makes it pretty black and white. There are four conditions that, that Job needs to meet for, the, for his suffering to end. He needs to set his heart on God, needs to pray to God, stretch out his his arms to him, turn from sin, and then to lead his household in living justly. And this is all good stuff. We ought to do this. Each one of us ought to do this. But where Zophar gets in trouble is making a promise out of this, is, is to make it to oversimplify again, right, and to superficiality, or with superficiality to address Job's suffering here. If you will do these things, then these things will happen. Before we look exactly at what those are, let's remember from a couple of weeks ago in Job chapter 3 what Job's primary complaints were. In Job chapter 3, the last three verses, 24 through 26, Job sets out, summarizes his complaints. He says in, in verse 24 that he is suffering. He's hurting. He's in pain. He's in sorrow. In and, and verse 25, he says he is afraid. What he has feared the most is coming to pass. And then in, in verse 26, he says he is weary. He has no rest. And so look at Zophar's promises in verses 15 through, through 20 here. Surely then... You will lift up your face without blemish. You'll be secure and will not fear. You'll forget your misery. You will remember it as waters that have passed away. And your life will be brighter than the noonday. Its darkness will be like the morning, and you will feel secure because there is hope. You will look around and take rest in your security. You will lie down, and none will make you afraid, and many will court your favor. But the eyes of the wicked will fail. All way of escape will be lost to them and their hope. Is to breathe their last. Just do what's right and you'll be relieved of your suffering. You'll lift up your face without blemish. Forget your misery as if it was water just passed away. Your life will be bright in the darkness. You know, the darkness will be taken away and many will court your favor. Just do what's right, and you will be relieved of your fears. You will be secure and not fear. You will will feel secure, rest in security. None will make you afraid. Just do what's right, and you will be relieved of your weariness. You will look around and take your rest in security. You will lie down. Think of your darkest times of suffering, your own darkest times of suffering. How would Zophar's words minister to you. You're sick? Just turn to the Lord. You'll be healed. You lost a loved one? Just pray. Your grief will go away. You're under financial strain. Stop sinning and you will prosper. You're struggling in your marriage? Get the iniquity out of your tents. Or in the terms of a popular theology, These days, get your life right, and then you'll live your best life now. In case that's not enough, we get to verse 20, right? And then, so far, speaks directly to Job's complaints again in a negative way. He started with, if you'll just live righteously, your suffering will go away. Your fears will go away. You'll have rest. But if you don't, you're going to suffer. You're going to be in danger, and you'll have no rest except for death. No wonder Job later exclaims, I have heard many such things. Miserable comforters are you all. Zophar is a miserable comforter because his theology is miserable. Look again at his words. They are full of you and your and the imagery of Job's circumstances. His words reveal that his theology focuses on the temporal. It extols man's righteousness and it asserts man's sovereignty. It is a theology of prosperity. It is a theology of self-righteousness and it is a theology of salvation by works. So far as theology focuses on the temporal circumstances, the prosperity of the present, it is the theology of Peter in Mark chapter 8 when he rebukes Jesus for saying that he must die. It's not the theology of Peter a, few, a little while later, in, in what Don just read in his first epistle, right, where he's, he says that we have a salvation indeed, right, ready to be revealed in the last days, an inheritance that is absolutely wonderful, that in it so wonderful that in it we can rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Zophar's theology is miserable because it is one that extols man's righteousness and the power therein. It presents the reality of this world as something that we can manipulate into favorable circumstances based on our self-righteousness. Or we can make unfavorable based on our unrighteousness. But here's a problem with that. A theology that doesn't allow for suffering without sin doesn't allow for well-being without works we see that Zophar's theology is miserable because it is one of man's sovereignty. If our circumstances, whether, whether our well-being right, or, 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 or our suffering are products of, of our righteousness or our unrighteousness, it means that we have control over them. That feels pretty good to us, actually. We like to be in control. Man's, conquest, or man's search or, or desire, his quest for sovereignty, is found in the sin from long ago, in Genesis chapter 11 in the, the Tower of Babel. And it's found in our sin today when we try to take control of our own lives. But again, if our suffering and sin, our or, or, or suffering and our well-being, are under our control, then what need is there for God to be sovereign? If Zophar's theology were correct, then how could we accept the case of Stephen, a man full of grace and power who went out and witnessed to the gospel only to be seized, interrogated, and stoned to death? How could we accept the case of Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles, inspired writer of Scripture, imprisoned, whipped, beaten, stoned, shipwrecked, in peril, weary, toiling, sleepless, hungry, thirsty, cold, and naked. And then how could we accept the witness of Jesus, who did prepare his heart, who stretched out his arms toward God, who put iniquity far from him, who did not let injustice dwell in his tents, and yet he was pierced for our iniquities. He was crushed for our transgressions. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we have been healed. Zophar's theology and that of his two friends at times sound so close to the truth, but it isn't. In fact, God himself will later condemn him, condemn them. He speaks out to Eliphaz. My anger burns against you in your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right. The answer to theodicy, again, of, of God's goodness and power w- when we have evil and suffering in the world, is not the oversimplification of these three friends. It's not a theology that focuses on the temporal, that extols mankind's righteousness or claims mankind's sovereignty, the answer is in the theology of Jesus. It's a theology that insists that God's sovereignty in our well-being requires God's sovereignty in our suffering. It's a theology that focuses on the eternal. It extols God's righteousness and it asserts God's sovereignty. The theology of Jesus doesn't ignore the temporal, yet it sets our mind on the eternal, on the things of God rather than those of mankind. It is the theology that tells us that we are to comfort those who are in any kind of suffering with the same comforts that we have received from God. It is the theology that commands us to mourn with those who mourn to visit orphans and widows in their affliction, to do justice and and to love kindness and to walk humbly with our God. It is the theology that tells us that all the sufferings in this life do matter. That God has kept count of our tossings, put our tears in his bottle, writes all of our suffering in his book. And yet even the most terrible of trials on this earth are but light and momentary afflictions in the light of God's eternal mercies and glory. And it is the theology that recognizes that we are called to address all human suffering and that the greatest of all human suffering is the eternal suffering that those who die apart from Christ will endure. Our theology of Jesus doesn't ignore our call to be righteous, yet it extols God's righteousness. It is the theology that says all have sinned, all have strayed, all have rebelled, and that all are condemned, and that our most righteous acts are but filthy rags. It's the theology that says we are not saved by our righteousness, but that in our corruption we are saved by God's grace through faith, not by works, so that no one may boast. It's the theology that clings to God's grace, that calls us to repentance, God's grace that cleanses us from unholiness, and God's grace that makes us righteous, holy, and blameless before Him. And finally, the theology of Jesus doesn't ignore our responsibility, but it asserts God's sovereignty his sovereignty in our well-being and his sovereignty in our suffering. It is a theology that praises God as the eternal creator, the maker of heaven and earth, perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, the God who forms light and makes darkness, who, who makes well-being and creates calamity, the God who feels indignation every day, the God who demands perfect justice, and the God who offers perfect mercy. So today we've got an opportunity to participate in this theology of Jesus. Put it into practical application. The Lord's table that we're going to participate in in a little bit is Jesus' theology on display. It's a practice that engages the physical senses. It's our heart, our soul, and our mind In the mysteries of faith, it helps us to behold the eternal, proclaim God's righteousness, and embrace God's sovereignty. We behold the the eternal in the promises of Christ's sacrifice. We we read this in, in Matthew chapter 26. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus and his disciples in this passage are huddled in an upper room. We read that they were sorrowful that they knew that one of the followers with whom they had just shared a meal was going to betray him to death. Jesus would tell them again this night that he would leave them, that they would be scattered, that Peter would deny him. There was much in the temporal to contemplate. And Jesus didn't minimize the gravity of it. They were about to enter into a time in which he would no longer be with them, no longer visible. There would be suffering and persecution and death. There would be a time in which they would endure tribulation. And yet Jesus also tells them that there is an eternity on which to focus, a promise that one day they would share the table again in his Father's kingdom that despite our sins, that has separated us from our Creator, the lover of our souls, that He offers redemption through the blood of the covenant. And so if you have taken hold of that covenant, may you behold the eternal in the promises of Christ's sacrifice. Next, we proclaim God's righteousness in the remembrance of Christ's sacrifice. We read this in Paul's account in in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This practice is not just for us to behold the eternal, but to proclaim God's righteousness. Forgiveness is not free. It costs the person who grants that forgiveness. When we participate in the Lord's table, we proclaim that due to God's righteousness that all sins demand payment. God says that apart from Christ, that payment is death, that all sins will be paid either at the foot of the cross or in the depths of hell. And so, if your sins have been paid for at the foot of the cross, we welcome you to join us as we proclaim God's righteousness in Christ's sacrifice. And finally, in the practice of sharing the bread, in the cup, as we behold the eternal, as we proclaim God's righteousness, we also embrace God's sovereignty in Christ's sacrifice. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether the thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning for the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven making peace by the blood of his cross. It's in Colossians chapter 1, verses 15. starting in verses 15. Jesus was not God's backup plan. He didn't have to come up with it to, to deal with what humankind had done with the garden. Jesus was not created. He is, he always has been, always will be. Eternally present with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He's been in, he was there in the beginning before anything was created. And all things were created through him. And he was always the plan to reunite us to God. Jesus said, for this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. And no one takes it from me but I lay it down by my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So if you've not laid hold of these truths yet, if you have not yet received God's gift of salvation, not by your works, but by His, then please just let the plate pass. There's no power of of salvation in this practice. There is the message of salvation, though, in our obedience to his command to do this together, to focus on the eternal, to proclaim God's righteousness, and and to embrace God's sovereignty in the work of Christ's sacrifice. So I'm going to ask the elders to come forward as we practice this.